0: Well, Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. Can we leave your Bibles open? We're going to begin uh, a journey uh, with Moses uh, through Exodus. Uh, it might seem a bit a bit large. Well, we'll see how it goes. We'll start and we'll see how far we get. I don't intend to deal with every uh, little tiny aspect of the law when we get to that, Acts, or, Sorry, Exodus 20 and forward, uh, but we'll have to do a little bit of summary. You wonder why, why Exodus. So Exodus is, is the first of four books that deal with the person of Moses. And if we were going to actually do a whole biography of Moses, we'd have to do Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and bring them together. And actually, we'd have to skip a little bit into the New Testament because he appears there at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. So the, the life of Moses is quite sweeping. And uh, it's quite fascinating. We, we often think of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses is, is thought traditionally to be the author uh, of these five books, and yet we recognize uh, if, this is, if, this, if the Exodus is somewhere around 1,440 before Christ, uh, then he wasn't there in the garden with Adam and Eve. Right? So there's this oral tradition that's been passed on by the people of God from the very beginning. And Moses is now finally uh, putting this down into writing. I, they, they surmise, I, if I remember right, that writing uh, came into to be around 2000 B.C., uh, around, around the time of Abraham. And uh, d- apparently it happened in about two different places Uh, nonetheless that's not our not our focus today but as it gives perspective and then some of the things that are written in in these first five books of the bible occur after Moses is is taken to be with the Lord so there obviously is at least multiple editors you know putting and compiling this together we ought to be okay with that that isn't that doesn't change our understanding or view of the divine authorship of the Bible, the scriptures, the Word of God. Certainly, Moses will learn, was educated in Pharaoh's household. He had the best education of the day. He's certainly competent to be able to record accurately the things that are here. Now, Genesis picks up, you may have guessed this uh, just by the reading that Mr. had brought to us. These are the names of. Of the sons of Israel, who came to Egypt, and that hinges right back to genesis doesn 't it? The end of Genesis, we have the narrative of Joseph, Joseph, who by these these men listed right here, uh, was put into a pit and and eventually brought out of the pit and sold into slavery into egypt but through through divine interventions, Joseph rise, rises to be viceroy the second in command of the empire of the world the known world at that time egypt was far reaching in its expanse and joseph helped egypt through some economic crises in particular a famine that was seven years uh incoming and then seven years long and joseph had this administrative capability and fiscal understanding to save the whole nation now we also have to recognize that what happened is all the property actually ended up being Pharaoh's property. So in one sense, no wonder people hated you know the Hebrews to some extent, and yet we remember here that they forgot the, this king comes who forgets what Joseph did. But we have this listing, and I, I, I suppose we, we want to know, well, okay, why Exodus? It's Old Testament, it's old covenant it's. 40 chapters long and you know how I do with one verse. So, you know, why why Exodus? Well, um, we want to know God. This book is about knowing God and how He is revealing Himself to His people in a particular way. For example, in Exodus chapter 3, um, I'll, I'll summarize the the concepts that are here, but here you have... Moses meeting with God face-to-face or face-to-bush, as it might be. And this is what God said to Moses, Exodus 3 and verse 14. God said, I am who I am. So go to the people and tell them, the Lord, the Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is My name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is revealing Himself in His his personal name. The great I Am. Yahweh. Yahweh. And and it's based on that, that be verb. To be. I am. I am who I am. His name is Yahweh. That's His personal name for His people. That's His covenant name for His people. It's Well, it, it's not Jehovah. We'll just have to say that. Jehovah isn't a, a real word. Jehovah isn't a real name. It, it can't happen in the Hebrew language. And I know this gets a little, a little confusing maybe, but I'll go here nonetheless. Yahweh uh, is, has four letters in Hebrew. And no vowels. The vowels came later. But the people of God were told, don't use the name of the Lord in vain. Never take His name in vain. So as the, as the Old Testament people would be reading the Scriptures, and the rabbis even today, as they're reading the Scriptures, they will come across it in the Hebrew that they're reading, and they see Yahweh there, but they will not say Yahweh, for they don't want to risk the possibility of taking the Lord's name in vain. And so instead, to give a little reminder to the reader, they put vowel pointings for another word, Adonai, which we would translate as Lord or Sir or Master, Adonai. They put the vowel pointing of Adonai to the consonants of Yahweh. And in the Middle Ages, when... Someone didn't really know the language all that well, and he came across it and he just pronounced it as it was there the, the Yahweh consonants, four letters with the Adonai vowel pointing. And I say pointing because they are, they're just little dots and little slashes. Um, and he came up with Yah-ho-va in Latin. Yehovah. Well, all Hebrew readers know you can't put those vowels with those letters. And I can't actually tell you the technicalities of that. It's just that it doesn't work grammatically and syntactically. Now, when certain people come knocking to your door, claiming to be Jehovah's witnesses, this is a fun little exercise. To have. Try this at home. You might want to practice a little bit, but do try this at home. Um, We want to know God. And He's he's revealing Himself to us in a personal way, in a, a covenant relationship way. We want to know God's redemptive work. And we'll see significant, uh, movings of God to take His people out of Egypt, and that's what the word Exodus in Greek. It's not Hebrew. Exodus is the Greek name for this book. The Hebrew name is is a little more arduous than that. It's these are the names. They just take the first few words of the book, and that's the name of the book. These are the names. Well, we call it Exodus. And it means ek, out of, and hados, the road, the way, uh, departure. Well, we want to know how God got His people out of Egypt. In John chapter 5 and verse 46... Jesus is having a a theological debate and conversation about the Scriptures and and about His own person and His own work. And He tells the religious leaders, He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote of Me. Wow! Wow! Moses wrote about the coming of the Christ. The coming of the Messiah. And Jesus, reading back, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tells the religious leaders, if you really knew Moses, if you, if you could read and believe what he said, you'd believe what I'm telling you. Wow. So we're going we're gonna to see how Christ is anticipated in this narrative of Exodus. Uh, we also have uh, 1 Corinthians 5-7. For example, I'm having trouble reading that. I suspect you are too from the distance. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb, our Passover Lamb. So when we get to that part of the narrative uh, in Exodus 12:13, somewhere in there, we see that that is a, an illustration of a greater redemption that's needed, a greater blood price that is to be paid in the Lord Jesus. This book is about God's work of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. It also gives us a, a pattern for worship. We want to know God's pattern for worship. In Exodus chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 3, uh, to, to conversation a conversation going on here. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let My people go. Let My people go. It's I just going to resonate in my mind and heart forever. All throughout this, this book. Let My people go that they may what? Hold a feast to Me in the wilderness. And then verse 3 goes on to say, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. They're going to go worship. They're going to feast with the Lord and they're going to sacrifice to the Lord. This anticipates this reality of worship. And the last half or so of Exodus is instructions of how to construct the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where God would, would dwell amongst the, the cherubim. He is seated above the cherubim in the Holy of Holies upon the Ark of the Covenant. And He is in the midst of His people. And He gives elaborate instruction as to how they are to build and construct the tabernacle as well as how indeed they are to engage in offering these sacrifices. And they're in a certain order. And I would uh, commend you to read Hebrews 8 and 9. We did that, of course, when we went through the book of Hebrews just a bit ago. And it, it says there that, that those Old Testament patterns of worship are shadows. In fact, they're patterns after the heavenly pattern of worship. And if the Old Covenant had regulations from worship, here's the implication in Hebrews 8 and 9, then imagine that it is true for the New Covenant pattern of worship as well. If the tabernacle is patterned after the way of heavenly worship, and then we get another picture of heavenly worship in Revelation 4:5:7, I think we need to have a pattern of worship that follows as closely as we can discern the heavenly model, the heavenly pattern of worship. And we'll talk about these as we go forward. We want to know God. We want to know His plan and His work of redemption. We want to know the pattern of worship. How we can approach Him. And we want to know His purpose. What's the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? What's the purpose of being a people of God? What, what is His standard, first of all? His standard for conducting a life as His people. And these standards indeed are are here uh, all throughout. But 1 Corinthians 10 gives us an application, an example of application. Paul writes to the Church of Corinth. The Church of Corinth was in total disarray in chaos and one-upmanship and showing off of their giftedness and talent and ability. But he he goes, he says, be careful. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. They're a community. They're together. They went through all this. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And we'll recount some of these narratives in Exodus. More will be in the book of Numbers. Paul goes on in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. While there is a warning. God has a standard for His people and he can give all of these wonderful, bountiful blessings and provisions and yet the heart of a people can still be hard, and resistant, calloused, ungrateful and not living according to this pattern of holiness and godliness. And Paul warns the church, he says in verse 6, These things took place as examples for us. That we would not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, he goes on and reiterates, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So here we find an example, and I suppose we might say the moral of the story. What are, What is our moral? What is our ethic to be and look like? What kind of people are we to be? Well, we will find this and we'll realize it's not only the external behaviors and patterns, but it's the motivations of a heart that follow the Lord. So we have then the purpose of his people. He he gives them a new vocation. We often use the term vocation thinking of purely a, a job or a profession. And that's fine as far as that goes. But I I would suggest that perhaps the the term for that better might be occupation. How do you occupy the time? How do you redeem the time? What is your work? Your occupation? Particularly, I say this as a people of God, because we all have the same vocation. That is, we have the same calling. That's what the word voce means calling, the God, God's voice calling a people to a purpose. Exodus 19 and verse 6. The Lord says to the people, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This applies in the New Testament as well. Peter writes to the church, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's your vocation. That's your calling. We together are the priesthood of the believers. Uh, well, this this is a part of why Exodus, part of why we go here. Uh, on a very pragmatic level, is simply because I haven't been here before. Oh yeah, I've studied Exodus, but I haven't done a sermon series in Exodus. And part of my my. Approach is is a, a little compulsive, I suppose. Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth, morning, evening. Sometimes they get, you know, intertwined or overlapped, but that's kind of the method. And we attempt to go through larger portions of Scripture, most of the time entire books of the Bible, but larger sections of Scripture. But we 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 take a moment here or there for a, a theme, a biblical theology which we enjoyed last Lord's Day by our brother. Uh, Or we do word studies like we did during Advent and study some of the names of the Lord. And then we repent. And then we we come and we get into the whole series of Scripture. And as we do this, we're going to touch on things that are touchy to any one of us along the way. Uh, We're not going to necessarily like the examples that are here. We're not necessarily going to like uh, how they're pricking us in the heart, but you can't blame me because we're simply going through the Scriptures paragraph by paragraph and I'm going to get pricked along with you. Well, the word Exodus, again, as we said, is to come out a departure. And, and Egypt is a, a once and for all time historical reality. And if you read the archaeology and the history, you, you, there's a lot of questions about the date, about who the pharaoh might be. There's early dates. There's late dates. and Kinds of archaeological complications. But if we're patient and we wade through them and, and wait for more archaeology to be done, we, we hold to what the Scriptures say and Little by little, little, more evidence comes. doesn't prove Scripture right but because that would elevate history and archaeology over Scripture, wouldn't it? No, we believe it. We hold it to be God's Word as God's Word. And sometimes history and archaeology catch up. The same would be true with any of the other sciences. And so we, we need to learn to be patient as well and not make some absolute statements on certain things. And that's another conversation. But we still have this reality of needing to come out. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 18 and verse 4, there's a kind of parenthetical movement within the Revelation. There's a call. Revelation 18.4 says, Come out of her, My people. Now he's talking to Babylon. Babylon, the harlot, has replaced Egypt. Come out of her, My people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. These are written for our example. They're written for our exhortation to come out of the world. Don't be part of the world. Come out of it. Because if you don't, the plagues that are delineated here, will come upon you. Dear friend, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Come out of sin and darkness and death into life and light to Christ. Well, the flow of Exodus is we could just There are different ways to do it. We'll just do it geographically. Chapters 1 to 15 in Egypt. Chapters 15 to 18 on the way from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Chapters 19 to 40, just over half at Mount Sinai. Well, the the first paragraph, very exciting. These are the names of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, and are listed uh, kind of by uh, who was their mother. They had the same father, but there are four different mothers of these boys. Joseph already in Egypt, and we explained how briefly he he got there. um, And they all died. That generation passed away. But the people were fruitful. There's a fruitful multiplication. Joseph died probably around 1,800 B.C. And now the time of the Exodus is going to be about 1,440-something B.C. But there's there's a space of 400-some years. In fulfillment of God's Word, God told Abraham... In Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you that you would be a blessing. I'm in the wrong verse, and I'm in the wrong part of my notes. Where did I talk about the 400? There it is. Exodus 12.40. No, that's not it either. <laughs> I'm not going to find it. All right. So, is it Genesis 15? Can you read it for me, Dave? Genesis 15.13, the Lord t- promises Abraham, You're gonna go, your, your people are going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years. They're going to be slaves. And they're going to have a hard time. God told him ahead. Genesis 15.13. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Okay. So, God promised along with that departure to Egypt that they would be fruitful there. I would make you a great nation, that you would be a blessing. In fact, that you wouldn't be able to count them. It would be like the dust of the earth, like the stars of the sky. And and we see that over the 400 years, the 70 turn into maybe 2 million by the time of the Exodus. If you take the census in numbers, uh, which ends up with about, what is it, 600,000? Men. And for the sake of argument, you say there's four people in a family on average or so. That's a good number. It's a good number of a people. The vocabulary that's used here is they multiplied greatly. They increased. They were exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. This is Genesis language. This is creation language. God is fulfilling His promise. There's a divine intervention here, we would assume. But there's a kind of a principle, and that is have kids. Now, some of us are past abilities to do so, it would seem. But globally, the, the, the average Christian family is 4.5. That's just a total global average, 4.5. Whereas the average Muslim household is 6.4. Now within any individual country, it's going to vary. But North American Christians, um, Christians out of 12 of the 15 lowest Country, uh, let me read it. Globally, Christians are the largest group in 12 of 15 countries with the smallest households. Christians around the world live in somewhat smaller households on average than non Christians. Now, that, of course, this varies from country to country. I remember visiting chicago with with our kids the five of them and we all got in the elevator at the we're at a hotel or something and the the poor couple that was in there they backed up as far as they could to the corner like i think they thought it was contagious <laughs> and this is pre-covid you know the kids were kind of little well behaved they, but they backed up as far as they could and they, Finally, the gal says, are they all yours? <laughs> well, four of them definitely look like two of us. At that time, Luca was the towhead, You know, blonde hair, blue eye. We'd been in Michigan, I don't know how many years by then, we finally got a Dutch boy. <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyes. And, and now he's darkened up like, like the rest of us. So... Um, there is a sense, not a complete sense, but a sense in which we could easily be overrun from a population standpoint. Now, it's not just about biological growth. That's an important part. And I do think it's inherent in how you actually make a disciple. You can't take your... 401k with you. You you can't take your houses and your cars and your possessions with you. The one thing that can go to the same place are your descendants. The disciples that you have made. And, And a good portion of them, the ones you biologically made together first and then disciple in the fear of the Lord. And that's a blessing. It's just something to ponder. And that, th- these numbers are from the Pew uh, Research. And you could look up the same thing. You have to be careful with statistics in that kind of thing. But just something to consider. But God nonetheless filled the land. Here we've got the old covenant people. And He's fulfilling His promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, could even go further back to Noah, to Adam, and the great creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. Joseph, in a sense, had dominion over the whole earth, didn't he? And provided a a garden space for the people of God to grow. But not all remains well. Verse 8 goes on, Now there was a new pharaoh over Egypt, who didn't know Joseph or didn't, didn't remember the good things that Joseph had done for the country. There's a, there's a very practical, nationalistic, patriotic ap- application there. A country that doesn't remember what its founding fathers have done is a path of destruction. And we we are dangerously toying around with such deconstruction, reconstruction projects in society to undo the past. And it, it will be the death of a nation as we begin to see here for Egypt. So we need to be a people who remember. Regardless of what country we're in, or regardless of what country we we end up in, as the people of God, we need to be a people who remember. And it's fascinating if you take that word remember and trace it through Exodus all the way to, to Deuteronomy, how many times the Lord tells His people, remember. Don't forget like Pharaoh forgot. Remember what God has done for you. And indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a a gentler, kinder sort of way, I suppose, at the Last Supper, He says, do this in remembrance of Me. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of Me. Remember what Christ has done. But there is indeed a bitter oppression. And as we read in Genesis 15-13, God promised that there would be affliction He didn't promise that this would be your best life now. That's for glory. But He did promise we will go through affliction, difficulties, suffering. Sometimes as we we look at our brothers and sisters, we can can see some of the challenges and the struggles. But, But some of those challenges and struggles are internal. And we need to come alongside one another and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep but uh, the new king comes doesn't remember what joseph has done and he he he's there's probably a transition of the dynasty that's gone on here and he sees this people group that's that's around 2 million or so and he 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 begins to get a little bit fearful politically militarily and he thinks these people could Bring about an uprising. In order to prevent that takeover, let's take over them. So he begins to afflict them with a economic suffering. Deal shrewdly with them. Time and again, they are, they are afflicted. Verse 11, Set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Verse 14, made their lives bitter with hard service. And again, they ruthlessly worked them hard as slaves. And and he begins this, and it makes verse 14, their lives bitter. Bitter. That would be a key word. We remember that word back in the book of Ruth when uh, Naomi says, don't, don't, don't call me that. Call me Mara. Bitter. I've lost my husband. I've lost my two boys. The Lord took them from me. My life is bitter. Now, God was working a plan of redemption through that, and through her daughter in law, Ruth, who would marry Obed, and they become the great grandparents of King David. Out of the bitterness comes something sweet. We wonder will that happen here again? These, these leadings of oppression, it takes one person. You see this? One leader is able to corral and motivate and move an entire people. Mao Zedong in China, Lenin in old Russia. Mao Zedong in China is responsible for 60 million deaths. Lenin enslaved 150 million. And of course, we don't know all the records. One person. How does the people go along with this? Well, it's ordinary people who allow themselves to be indoctrinated by the truly evil. And it's very subtle. Propaganda. We've been saturated with this over decades ourselves, culturally. Culturally, then there is the reality that it's it's beneficial for some people. It helped Pharaoh, but then there's also the, the lack of courageous people. Do you realize that slavery is still a, a problem today? The not-for-sale campaign uh, says that there's upwards of 30 million slaves in the world yet today, and that the, the second... Largest organized crime activity is human trafficking. It involves the sexual perversions of that, but it's much more than that. One one commentator on this says, "What, what motivates this kind of thing? Two roots of evil. Sexual perversion and financial greed. Despite the injustice like this, there's God. In the midst of this, God promised to make a nation. And nothing is going to thwart His purpose. In, in fact, every, every plan that is contrived to do so is the very means that God uses to make His people stronger. The purpose purpose of pain and suffering is complex. But one of the purposes of pain and suffering is to strengthen His people. Now, we can wrestle with this, but when when we wrestle with if there's a God, why is there evil? And it's a good question. It's not the same question that Jesus asked of his father, but it, it certainly has a similar emotional impact. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, but when when we pause to ask if God was good, then there wouldn't be evil. It misses part of the equation, and that is human responsibility we tend to underestimate how sinful, how depraved is the human heart. We'll blame God, but not ourselves. These are only part answer to the complex complex doctrine of theodicy. That's what this is called. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on this text, he, he identified suffering of God's people in this way, particularly for, for Israel. Had God allowed Egypt to remain so comfortable, they would not have wanted to leave. They would not have wanted to come out of Egypt to be the people of God. Indeed, once they're already out in the wilderness, we're going to find that they they'd like to go back for cucumbers and onions and leeks. Different diet, isn't it? They want to go back. Part, part of the answer of suffering is, is to motivate us for a better place, I, I firmly believe that certain things have have happened in my own my own life over the over years, even as a little boy, so that I wouldn't be overly comfortable and not pursue the things of the kingdom. Again, it's a complex problem and reality. But there are part answers. Well, it's all me today, so I'll just give you a few more minutes. Verses 15 to 22. One last paragraph here. We move now to population control. Can you you imagine... I don't know that I could, because I've not actually carried the child within me. Men can't do that, you know. But there, there. I remember, you know, we didn't have even in. in we're not that old, but we didn't have revealed days, necessarily, uh, to, you know make a big party celebration, whoop do, is it a boy or a girl? And, uh, But nonetheless, we have the ultrasounds and we're able to see pictures and they say, anyway, they're hard for me to make out. And they say, it's a girl or it's a boy. Okay, I'll believe you. <laughs> There's none of this In Egypt. Your wife gets pregnant, and you've got about forty weeks to to wait and find out. Do we have a boy or do we have a girl? Or what and and if we have a boy, what do we do? We really don't want the midwife to come. We'd like to keep our boy. It's kind of a reverse of the one family one child campaign, right well, but you would think if they really wanted slaves why would why wouldn't they get rid of the girls and keep the boys? You know, kind of like you know the modern day scenario we, we want to build our army, so you know we'll get rid of the girls and keep the boys well, remember they 're worried about military overthrow and and they can more easily incorporate the women, the females into the fabric of their culture. So, uh, you wait those 40 weeks. But maybe it's no better knowing. Of course, today, they wouldn't even let you go full term, would they? If there is something just not quite right with, with that baby in the womb then we societally medically have the ability to not even go full term we're 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 living in this time this is very real for us but there there's there are two nurses could we call them saints of the medical corps? Shifra and Pua, their, their names reveal their character. Shifra, beautiful one. Pua, splendid one. And what they do is beautiful and splendid, isn't it? They promote life. That's what the medical community is sworn to do. Promote life. Not take it. Made in Canada is a terrible problem. I'm not saying M A D E, I mean M A I D. Medical Assisted Interventionary Dying. Something like that. Mm. You know, these, these two fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. They're named. We don't even get Pharaoh's name. This is like a slap in the face. I mean, you go to Egypt and you go look at those pyramids and you go look, their names are placard everywhere. They want everybody to know their name. And Moses just is not going to say. Not going to give him any... It's not even good to talk about what they do in darkness. Doesn't even give him credit for the evil. But the name of these beautiful, splendid ladies of the Lord are named. This is the kind of work we want to do in a society and a culture that that destroys. A culture of death. We, as the people of the Lord, can be a Puah and a shifra to do beautiful and splendid things in society and culture. To promote life and light. And Brett McCracken had an editorial this week uh, about transgressive uh, activities in the, the uh, entertainment world. And, and it's become, the more transgressive you can get, the more edgy you get, then the more fame you will, you will attain. And maybe you've heard about the Grammys and the garbage that, that, that's there. Yeah, that's transgressive. But he, Brett makes this, this observation that what is going to happen for the people of God who are living for life and light, we are the transgressors. Now, I'm going to change the editorial just a little bit. It used to be the moral majority. You remember that? Some of you would back in the 80s. The moral majority, and we became we became a lobbyist group. We were a great political block, and 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 all the they were bantering for us. Over time, then, well, we're old-fashioned. We just looked foolish. We just were silly in their mind. But now, we're not just foolish or old-fashioned. Now we are evil. When you live for life and light, that's sin to the world. They call evil good and good evil. But will you live courageously? Will, will I live courageously like a Pua and a Shifra? Like the apostles. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You'll go on in another place to say we must obey God rather than men. Oh we ought to make sure it's on the the right issues core essential issues not peripheral things and we we can get into whether they lied or not the text doesn't say that they lied why do we assume that they did i mean the the divine multiplication of verse 7 could could also be indication that they didn't need the midwives maybe maybe poor in shifra we're telling the truth. They might have been still kind of tongue-in-cheek with the Pharaoh. Hey, the, the Hebrew women are a lot stronger than the Egyptian women. They don't need us. They, they could have actually been honest. We don't have to assume that they lied, and that's an easy way for me to bring it that to closure. Pharaoh, Pharaoh appears in the archaeological records with his, his headgear, right? And what's what's on the front of the headgear? What? A, a snake. It, this isn't in the this this passage. Okay, we're just using our minds and putting the whole of Scripture together. What? what who's the snake? It at least reminds us of the serpent in the garden that's going to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. And that's exactly what's happening here. Pharaoh is a no-good, bad guy. A mean one, Mr. Pharaoh. But behind this is the diabolical enemy seeking to eradicate the very line from which God Almighty will bring the seed of the woman to bring redemption to the whole of the world. Satan is behind this persecution. Satan is behind this affliction. He is trying to prevent the coming of Christ. This is partly why he had Cain kill Abel. And in several more years, this is why Herod will have all the baby boys slaughtered. Behind it is a great cosmological battle, a spiritual warfare. And Pharaoh has two strategies of slavery and death, and they are the strategies of our enemy, the devil. Slavery and death. One put it this way, sin leads to slavery. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. John 8.34 And once we're enslaved, then sin leads to death. Death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. These same two strategies, same two tactics, are what we need saved from. We have been enslaved to sin and die. A bitter death. We need a Savior to deliver us from sin and rescue us from death. And we've alluded to this, that Savior is our Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. This is why we'll study Exodus and we'll ensure that the next sessions are just a little bit more expedient. Father in Heaven, we do commend this teaching to You. We thank You for revealing Yourself to us, knowing that You are infinite, eternal beyond our comprehension, except that You would reveal Yourself to us. Now, may we be strong and courageous living in this world, but not of it. May we have the courage of these servants, exemplar, to live for life and light in a culture of death and darkness. Would You raise up from Uh, among our midst. Professionals, workers, laborers who will work and produce goodness and beauty and truth. And so be salt and light till the coming of Jesus. In His name we pray, Amen.